0: Well, good morning again, church. Um, As always, it's an honor of mine to be able to stand in this pulpit and be able to open up the Bible with you. Uh, Full disclosure, though, um, I have not slept pretty much in the last, like, 36 hours. Uh, And and the reason behind that is, unfortunately, um, my kids are pretty sick. Uh, One of them more sick than the other that we had to take to the hospital last night, and she is still there this morning. Um, receiving some oxygen, uh, but she's doing well, um, but she just has needed a little extra help um, through the night. Now, <coughs> with that being said, I'm thankful for God's word this morning, because no matter how we come in here, whether we're refreshed, right, or tired, Uh, maybe we've been walking with Christ for a long time, maybe we're just investigating the claims of Christianity, one of the best places for every single one of us to go is, well, where does the Bible begin, the discussion? Where Where does the Bible begin when it says, where is your hope, or who do you worship? And so, as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning our new series in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Now, every book of the Bible, every, all the 66 books that we have in our English Bible are the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And so they're all important and absolutely profitable for us to walk through. But I believe that the book of Genesis has some special value and really should have a special place in the heart of every Christian. Because not only is Genesis the very first book in the Bible, but I think Genesis sets the stage or the trajectory of what all the Bible is going to be about. In fact, I would say that Genesis, probably more than any other Old Testament book, has shaped my understanding of Christianity and Jesus and God and the gospel more than any other Old Testament book has. When I became a Christian, I would say this is probably the book I spent the most time in as I was trying to figure out who is this God in whom I understand that went to a cross for me and died for me, what kind of God is this? The book of Genesis sets out to answer that question. You also will find the book of Genesis probably in a lot of intellectual debates, maybe scientific debates. So even outside of Christianity, the book of Genesis has a special place in a lot of people's hearts, both Christian and non-Christian, trying to figure out, okay, what is Christianity all about? So it has a lot of airtime there. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably know some of the narratives of the book of Genesis. Right? You probably know about Adam and Eve, maybe the garden. Probably know about Noah and the flood, likely. Even outside of growing up in, uh, in the church, you probably, we all probably have a a, a a little bit of a foundation to what is in the book of Genesis. But here's the problem with that, is for many of us, we probably have just enough information about the book of Genesis that we don't look at the text carefully when we read it. Or we think we know just enough of the stories that we do find recorded in the book of Genesis, and because of that, we don't go to it to deepen our understanding of who God is and what He's about. And so my prayer that over the next few months, as we we try to tackle the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis, because we're going to do chapters 1 through 11 first, and then 12 through 50 later on at another point. But the first few chapters really set the stage for what all of the Bible is going to highlight, what all of the Bible is going to put emphasis on. And what is that emphasis? It's who God is. What He's going to do about humanity What we mean to him. What does humans mean to him? And how the hope of redemption can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Genesis sets that up. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there for a moment. I'm going to pray one more time. And I'm going to pray for you. And just that you this morning would be able to receive God's word. And the Holy Spirit would be able to illuminate that in a special way for you. Just to understand Uh, him and his word I'm also going to pray for our kiddos and as I'm doing that as always I'd ask that you just pray for me and then we will begin well father I thank you uh, for just all of the ways that that you have given us uh, a means to know you and God even as we look at the, the specific ways that you've given us to know you through your word and through creation God I thank you that we're not left just to make you up we're not left just with a blank piece of paper just to draw on what we think you would be best like. But you are far better than anything that I could have ever dreamed about. So God, I pray for every man and woman in this room, every every heart that is inside the corridors of these walls, that you would build them up, even our littlest hearts. God, as they're looking at the very same text as we're looking at here, that you would encourage them, that they would just have a big big vision of who you are, and got to pray for us in here, that we would be able just to walk out of here this morning just knowing you and loving you more than when we first walked in, but we need you in that, so it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray, amen, amen. All right, Genesis, chapters one, chapter one, starting in verse one, and we're just going to read the first two verses this morning. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, I got good news for you. It's on page one. Okay? If you don't, it's not going to be too difficult to find this morning. Is that the same one for the Scripture Journal? Is that page one? Anybody want to confirm that? No, No pages. Okay. You're left on your own. There. You're in the right book, though, if you're holding that. All right. Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. Let me read that for us. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. All right, now, if you're wondering how long this is going to take to just walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if we're walking through just two verses at a time, you're going, it's going to take a lot longer than a couple months. You'd be right if we were only doing two verses at a time. But this week, just so you know, this is the, has the shortest amount of verses that we're going to walk through. As we get into the text more, uh, we're going to see bigger chunks of Scripture. In fact, there will be weeks where we're doing just whole chapters at a time, even, even a couple chapters at a time. But I wanted to highlight just the first two verses of the book of Genesis, because I believe these do set that foundation of where we're going. And I also wanted to take time to give you some background information on the book of Genesis, to know what are we reading. What are we reading this morning? So before we actually even look at those first two verses, can I just give you some background information on what Genesis is about? Kind of, who wrote it? What's, you know, who was its original audience? And then how should we interpret that today? Because any book of the Bible needs to be understood in its proper context, church. It's proper context. And so it's helpful to have that back in background information of, of authorship, maybe even literary, literary genre, uh, who that original audience is. Because if you don't know some of those things, you can misread a text. right? Because we read a text with all kinds of factors going on in our lives. We read a text as Westerners. We read text with background information that we grew up with, maybe that we heard before. Even our, the English words that we read, sometimes we read that with an American way of how is that word used in maybe our homes, or how is that word used in Western American culture. And so we have to sometimes zoom out when we begin books of the Bible to go, how do we rightly understand what we're reading? In the academic world, this is known as hermeneutics. Okay, it's the art and science of interpretation. How do you interpret a text? In our day and age, this is really important because for many people, they like to say, well, that's your interpretation, or that's your truth, that's not that like my, my truth. Let me speak very frankly to this. Is just because we, we can all have interpretations, that's true, right? that doesn't mean that all interpretations are right, right? We can all say what our answer is when we ask the question, what is 2 plus 2? But it doesn't mean that all answers are valid. And so when we study a book, that concept of hermeneutics is so important for us not just to have a interpretation, but the right interpretation of a text. And when it comes to a book like Genesis probably one of the most important books in the entire Bible to have a proper hermeneutical understanding of what you're reading. Most people get Genesis wrong, church, is because they don't know what Genesis was intended to communicate. And so they're trying to pull out answers from the text that the text is not trying to answer. And so we're going to be looking at what is the most important topics in this text. Who is the author originally writing too, And why is this book then inspired by the Holy Spirit for all people in all times to be able to, to know and understand? So first, let's talk about Genesis, the title. What does Genesis mean? Well, the title of the book is called Genesis because it's a Greek translation of the first three words that you see in Hebrew. Hebrew was the original language it was written in, and so the first original three words are in the beginning. In the beginning. Now, in Greek, that is called Genesis, or origins. So, it's a book rightly entitled Genesis, because it's a book of origins. Now, what, what kind of origins are we talking about? The origins of humanity. The origins of how Israel came to be. The origins of what is God's plan for humanity. It's trying to set up a specific lane in which it's wanting to walk down. And let me point out, it's not the origins of everything exhaustively. You're not going to find an exhaustive, detailed account of the origins of everything, okay? But specifically, we will see the origins of creation, the origins of humanity, and it lays out the pattern of the Bible uh, that all of the Bible will walk down. Let me show this to you. It's on the screen. All of the Bible walks through this pattern. Basically, this is the lane in which all of the Bible is walking through. And that's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That last word, sometimes people would say consummation or redemption um, in full. But that's the lane in which all of the Bible is walking down. So the book of Genesis then rightly begins with creation, kind of that first beginning creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the pathway. Now, what about the author? Like, who wrote the book of Genesis? This is really important because the author isn't mentioned by name in Genesis, but it is um, offered biblically in other texts of the Bible as well, as historically. Genesis is the first book out of the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Pentateuch or the Law of God. Our Jewish friends would call the first five books of the Bible the Torah. The Torah. It's the book of law or instruction that the early Jews had which described how their origins came to be. So those first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? These five books have always been grouped together historically and biblically. Always shown to have one author communicating one idea. So it's basically part one of a five-part series of the origins of Israel. They were meant to be read together. They were not meant to be separated from one another. They're all trying to tell one story. Now, Genesis is approaching it from a unique lens at the beginning, the first 11 chapters, going to talk about how humanity began, whereas Chapters 12 through 15 start to zoom in a little bit on one particular family. But biblically and historically, authorship has always been given to Moses. To Moses. And let me give you a few examples of this biblically. In Numbers, um, I don't have these on the screen, but you don't have to turn there. In Numbers 33-2, it says that Moses wrote down their starting places. That Moses wrote down their starting places. In Deuteronomy thirty-one twenty-four, it says, "When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book, communicating that these five books of the Bible, first five books, were written by Moses." Okay, the early church and all of Judaism has always believed this historically. Now, probably uh, most importantly, Jesus told us that the first five books were written by Moses. In John 5, 46-47, Jesus talks about when Moses wrote the law, he was communicating about me. Jesus is saying those first five books of the Bible were ultimately Moses talking about me. And we'll get there like, okay, how was Genesis about Jesus? We'll get there in a moment. Now, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) Moses' authorship (coughs) has been challenged by some. Uh, let me just admit that to you. There are some biblical scholars that would say, you know, we're not quite sure if Moses actually wrote Genesis. Now, I would say that those scholars are in the minority. And really, <coughs> that's a case that's only come up in the last hundred years. Throughout all of church history, nobody has raised those questions. Um, I don't think that those, those claims that maybe Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible are legitimate uh, for a variety of reasons. But to just to simplify it for us today, I believe that Moses wrote Genesis. And I'm mostly banking on that because Jesus told us so. So I'm going to stick with Jesus when he says that Moses wrote Genesis. Okay? So if Moses is the author, then who is the original audience? Who were the first people to get the book of Genesis? If Moses lived around between 1500 and 1300 B.C., Who would he have been writing to? Now, many of you, you guys know, okay, you know who Moses is. Moses is a character that we're introduced later on in the book of Exodus as the man in which God chose to lead the nation of Israel out of this Egyptian captivity towards the promised land. So when Moses then wrote the book of Genesis, it's believed that Moses wrote it during the time of Exodus, during the time when they were in the wilderness on their way to this promised land of Canaan. It was during Exodus when we see that Moses had these special encounters with God where he received this special revelation from God about who God is and even our origins. So when Moses sat down to write and even to preach these words, which he probably did, who was the audience right in front of him? It was a bunch of former Egyptian slaves that were following him in the wilderness trying to understand what in the world is going on. Trying to understand where did we come from as a people? What kind of God do we worship? Remember, at this point, they would have already seen all the plagues happen. They would have seen the Red Sea parted on their behalf. They would have seen this wonderful acts of God in their life already, and then are asking Moses a question, Who is this God, Moses? Who is this, the part of the sea for us? Who is this God that has chosen us? Where did we come from as a people? Have we always been slaves to the Egyptians? This is the audience in whom Moses is originally writing to, which is really important for us to understand what is Moses intending to communicate. Another way of putting this is a fancy word called polemical. The book of Genesis is a polemical book. Now, polemical is a fancy word for argument. So Moses was intending to make an argument when he wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was intending to argue to his original audience some really important factors on who God is and their history. Because if if the Israelites were asking questions of, Moses, where did we come from? Moses, who's the God who's part of the Red Sea? What is he like? Is, Is he just one of the many Egyptian gods that we have been taught growing up? Or is he different? I think it's the same questions that we all ask them, isn't it? About God, humanity, ourselves, what's going on in the world? I know for me, I get these questions every single night. Mostly for my eight-year-old, right? As we're trying to put her to bed and trying to get everybody to fall asleep and praying that they would fall asleep. My, my oldest, Mia, who many of you guys know in the church, uh, she is inquisitive. She may seem quiet here on Sunday, but I'll tell you what, at 8 o'clock p.m., in her bed, she's the most talkative person you'll ever meet in her life. And she's, what is she asking? She's trying to ask me questions, I think maybe to stay awake, um, so she doesn't have to go to sleep. But she's asking big questions. Every single time I go in there and try to say goodnight to her and pray just kind of these bedtime prayers with her, she's saying, hey, God, or hey, Dad, why did God do this? Or can God do that? She asks really big questions about who God is before she's going to bed. She even asks really big questions about herself, of even this last week. She's like, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? I get, you get to tell her the gospel in that, right? You got to tell her about who, who, who God is, who Jesus is. These are questions that part of being made in the image of God, I believe, is built into our DNA to want to know. We want to know who is it that created us. Because when we look at the sunsets, we look at the sunrises, and we've had some beautiful ones this last week, you can't help but think that there is something more behind what you're just seeing with your eyes. That it doesn't just happen by accident. And so if Mia is asking those big questions, and Israelite is asking these big questions, what do you do? Moses is answering those questions. That's what the book of Genesis is about. He's writing to answer the questions in which we are asking. And as I mentioned, I believe the structure of this book shows that, where the first eleven chapters narrow in on basically the creation of humanity, all of the world, but then it zooms in on one particular family because Moses wanted to communicate: How did Israel came to be? What is that family line like? What is that history? And lastly, um, as, a, as a polemic, Moses wanted to communicate because they likely had only been taught that there's many lowercase g gods who are fighting for attention and authority in this world. They probably grew up thinking, well, we've got to please the river gods. We got to please the sun god, right? We got to please the pleasure gods. We got to please all these different gods who are combat- fighting and combating for our attention and worship to see who wins. And that's why Moses begins with saying, There's not many gods, there is one true God who is the creator of all. You see, church, even the opening line of the Bible is an argument to the questions that our souls are asking. That's why it begins the way it does. He's asking a very, or trying to answer a very specific set of questions that is common to all of humanity. So his purpose then is to communicate what we need to know about God. Because here's an important principle as we walk through Genesis, really for all the Bible for that matter. The Bible will not tell you everything you want to know. we're not going to find out what happened to the dinosaurs as we walk through Genesis. I I get bummed about that because I want to know. I'm just curious. The Bible does not tell us everything we want to know, but here's the cool thing, church. It tells us everything we need to know about God and humanity and his redemption. That's the focus of this book. Not everything we want to know. Everything we need to know. So before we actually get into the the creation days um, next week, because we like to jump um, right into those, we're really quick to jump into those. And if you guys notice, when you walked in, you guys will see these different wood placards um, that our art team, mostly my sister Amanda, um, spearheaded. These are basically the days of creation in just kind of a picture form. And we like to get to those, and we're going to get to those because they're important for our understanding of who God is and what he's done. But I wanted to take time and just look at those very first two verses because we like to get to the days of creation and we skip over these, thinking that they don't actually give us a whole lot of information. So let's go ahead. That's the intro. Now we're getting to the sermon. Let's look at verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. So what does it say? It says, In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So the first thing that Moses then tells us, the first thing that Genesis actually communicates to his original audience and us by extension today is what? Who God is. It's a theology of who God is. We see that before creation, there was what? There was the existence of God in the beginning. God. So God did not come out of anything. Right? God was not waiting for things to create it, and all of a sudden he showed up himself. That he was outside of this creation which we see. In the beginning, God did something. He wasn't the product of some big bang. He wasn't the product of some random events that happened in the universe. In fact, what we see is that God is eternal. In the beginning, God. That he has no beginning then. The Hebrew word for God here is Elohim, Elohim. Uh, and even it's in the plural form in the original Hebrew, not in the plural form like you think of like the Trinity, which we'll get at here soon. But the plural form is communicating this majesty in the Hebrew language, the Elohim, is meaning the the God of gods, the one and true God, the one that's above everything. Moses is saying there's only one true God, and He was there in the beginning, and He's the one who created what it says: the heavens and the earth. Now that's language for everything that's seen and unseen. Everything above and everything below. He's the creator of all things. Going back to that original audience then, that means that there's not these lower case G-gods who are having their different roles in creation. Like there's this goddess of the sea who creates the sea, or this goddess of the land who creates the land, or this god or goddess of the sun who provides the sun's warmth. Moses doesn't play around. He goes right at the heart of the most misconstrued understanding that those Israelites probably had and says, there's one true God who created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. So we're not having to look for these other gods, who are not gods at all. They're made up mythological things. Moses goes right at the heart. And there's a second attribute that I want to point out. That if God was before creation, and that he, if he was fully God before creation, that means is he is self sufficient in and of himself. That means that he wasn't part God, and then after creation, he became fully God but that before he created anything, he was absolutely and fully God. He was self-sufficient in himself. Now, here's your second um, theological lesson for today. This means that God is a God of aseity. It's the aseity of God which we're we're looking at. Now, that's a big word. Let me spell it out. A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's what theologians, it's come from a Latin term, the aseity of God means that God is self-sufficient in himself. And and I bring this up not just to try to be nerdy with you guys, but because I want you to understand that the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis 1-1, is the God who was before and self-sufficient in all things before he created. He didn't become God later on. God didn't need the heavens and the earth. He didn't need humanity. He didn't need us in order to be God. He was fully self sufficient in himself before creation. We'll see later on that God, with the Godhead, the Trinity, that God is one person that eternally exists as three different persons, which I know is confusing. We'll get there. That God wasn't lonely. It's not like he created the earth because he was lonely and he needed something from us. If that was the case, then God would be dependent on us for something. The aseity of God means that he is fully sufficient on himself. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. But what's the opposite then? We see a creation that then is fully dependent on him. That he is self sufficient, and creation is not that we had to wait on him to speak us into being. So God did not lack anything before he created the earth. He did not lack glory. He did not lack power. He did not lack anything within himself. But in his creation, what he was putting on display was his glory for us to see, for the world to see, It was a means for the people, for humanity, to know God. One of the ways that we know this is in the book of Romans, Paul actually brings this argument in the New Testament when he's talking about how everyone is going to be held accountable to how they responded to God because of what? Do you remember? Because of creation. Because everyone has seen creation, everyone has partaken in creation, then everyone knows that there is a God. Therefore, we are morally liable than To how we responded to creation. How we responded to this truth of who God is. Merely for the fact that we've all witnessed creation. That's Paul's argument in Romans 1. But going back to Genesis 1. Moses quickly identifies that God is the creator of all things. All things came from him. And I, I know I'm a I'm saying a lot of different Latin words for us this morning. There's another important Latin phrase that is needed in this conversation. It's the Latin phrase ex nihilo. Ex nihilo is Latin for out of nothing, God created. That God did not wait for just the right things to come together and goes, finally, all the elements are present, then I can do something. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, He didn't wait for anything. He spoke it out of nothing into existence. This is the God in whom we worship, church. It's not a lowercase g God who's just trying to impress us, trying to get us to do certain things so we might like him, so we might worship him. God does not need our worship. Does he desire it? Absolutely. But he does not need our worship for anything in and of himself. It's why I believe in the the opening Uh, Chapter in the Gospel of John, the author John actually uses this same language to communicate the supremacy of Jesus. Do you remember this in John 1? Let Let me show you this. I should have a screen on this. John 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John was speaking about Jesus here, and one of the best ways that John knew how to begin his, basically his biography of who Jesus was, was go, this Jesus who I'm about to tell you about, he was in the beginning. He was the God of all creation. He didn't come later on. Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was there in Genesis 1 1. Nothing is created without him. Speaking about the divinity of Jesus. So what does this all mean for us? It means that when we look at Genesis 1-1 church, it means that there is this, this adoration that should flow out of us when we think about God. There's also this, this need for us to respond to him. right? If this is the God in whom we're saying we worship, if this is the God of the Bible, it means that we can't just go, oh, that's great, and then go on our merry way. If this is the authority, if this is the power that the God of the Bible has, then we have to respond to him. We can't just go, that's nice, and go on our merry way, or go, that's maybe your interpretation, I'll go choose something else. We're all going to be held accountable to how we responded to this God. That's what the author's trying to get at. That's what Moses is trying to communicate to all these former Egyptian slaves in front of him, going, oh, you mean the God that parted the Red Sea is not just the God of the sea. He's much bigger than that. So when we say that we are waiting and depending on him for all things, Moses, this is the God who we get to wait and depend on. Moses like, yeah, now you're getting it. Now you understand why this is important. So we must ask ourselves the same question then. Is this the God in which we worship? Or is this the God we've read about and go, oh, I'm just going to go on my merry way? Or do we even look at this and go, ah, I, still, I still think I can do better. I still think I'm maybe smarter than this God, and I have a better plan for my life than maybe he has, so I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. Thanks, but no thanks. We can't do that, church. We can't. That's what this is trying to communicate for us. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, unfortunately, that that attitude of thanks but no thanks has been there from the very beginning. And we'll see humanity's rebellion play out. We'll see all of our response at one point or another, us going, you know what? I don't know if I really need him. I think I might know better than him. And every single one of us has turned our backs on this creator God and sinned against him. And we'll see the very first time that happened, But we're also going to see what God has done about sin. How this creator God who is all powerful and all knowing and create anything out of nothing. This same God is the one who goes, I am going to do something about sin in your rebellion. I'm going to send someone to redeem you from it. I'm going to send someone to take the penalty of it. Because what God wants us to know is not just his power. His power but also his mercy and his grace for sinners like you and I. You see, the book of Genesis is a wonderful book. It's going to showcase parts of the attributes of God that we simply, if we read it too quickly, we might miss. We might miss. All right, verse 2. Verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. here, church, and this is a a really missed verse in a lot of commentaries, um, mostly because we just, we get to it, or we think it's something that it's not. What we are seeing here in verse 2 is almost a a different tone, so to speak. Or maybe verse 1 is like this, this, this high-powered, this is the God of all creation, but then all of a sudden these lower beats of a drum going, but there's a problem. There's a, there's this tension that needs to be resolved, it says that the earth is described without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, many of us will go to, yeah, that's because sin or there's some kind of moral problem. But remember, this, this is before sin entered the world. But yet what we see is this tension that there's this problem, not a moral problem because of the consequence of sin, but there's this problem which God wants to, to step into. It's this problem that Even that God spoke everything into existence, there's this lack of fullness within creation already. This lack of fullness. That's why you see these words like without form or there's some voidness to it. Whenever the Bible uses that phrase without form and void, it's, it's talking about this barren land. Think of like a desert. That it has like the structure, but it's lacking its fullness for life. It's lacking that the necessary things in which human flourishing will be able to participate in. So you see this low tension, even in the second verse of all the Bible. In ancient Norian liturgy, they would say that this was because there was this goddess of the sea that wanted to take over the world, that wanted not to just be limited to the sea, but wanted power over everything. Once again, that's why we see the second half of verse 2 is Moses is going right to the heart of that argument. And what does he say? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? So it wasn't a, hey, let's see how it works out. Let's see who wins in the end. Or maybe when, if we look at even, you know, maybe a practical way if we going... Okay, if there's chaos or there's voidness in my own life, what do I do? Do I look within? Do I try to figure this out on myself? Do I hope just the right person wins in the end? No. The Bible is always communicating one central idea. Don't look in, look up. That's where we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering like an eagle hovers over its nest. One of provision, one of authority, One of, I know what I'm doing, and I'm about to do something incredible. That's the language that we're seeing here, church. And the Bible will do this all over again. We'll see a problem, we'll see something that's lacking fullness, needing something or someone to intervene, and what is always the answer? Not you, but him. So God is about to do something at the end of verse 2. There's an anticipation of God's work that's about to begin. God is going to work in what is void and doesn't have fullness and bring creation and purpose to it. He's going to bring fullness to creation. Do you see how just in these first opening uh, sentences of the Bible that we are starting to understand this whole picture of what all the Bible is going to teach us? That God takes what is void, God takes what is lacking in fullness and purpose, and He steps into and says, I will give this purpose and fullness, me and me alone. If that's the case for Genesis 1 and 2, isn't that the case then for all of us? Isn't that the case for every situation? Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? And so maybe, we'll just maybe zoom this out to just a very practical level for us, If your life feels like it's void or lacking fullness or it feels like darkness seems to be right at the face of this deep that surrounds your life, what is the answer? The God who wants to step in and bring fullness and purpose to it. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the pathway in which Moses begins with. It's the pathway in which he always works through, always bringing perfection to what he began. You see, Church Genesis, then, I think it's intended then to take our eyes off of our circumstances. Take our eyes off of the places where we go, I don't know how this is going to bring fullness or how this part of my life is going to work out. It's intended to have you go, but God. But God is going to do something, because He always has. If Genesis 1-1 is true, or 1-2 is true, then everything which we walk through as a people, we can trust that God is not done with us, that He's not done with any kind of voidness, or any kind of incompletion that we experience in this world. And I think, honestly, most of the time when we, we struggle with that voidness or that incompletion as Christians... It's because we've forgotten about the God in whom created us. We go, I know you began all this. I know you're in charge of all things. But I like to try to take the baton from you and carry it on myself at times. Genesis 1, 2 says, don't pass the baton. Humble yourself under the God of all creation. And if God is at the front of all creation, I think that should be evident in our lives, shouldn't it? Where we want our lives to reflect that we know the God who's before all things. I think if we're like the Israelites, too, by the way, when they were hearing this for the first time, was everything going well in their lives? Not necessarily, right? They were in the wilderness. Right? They, were, they were these nomads, it felt like, just wandering and asking, God, what are you up to? Where are we going? Did you bring us out here to die? And Moses saying, <clears throat> if God started this, God's going to finish this, and you can trust him right now. You can trust him to bring order out of chaos. You can trust him to bring fullness out of incompletion. You can trust him. And all the things and all the places in which you need him to move. That this God of Genesis 1 and 2 is a God of perfection. We know later on when Paul says that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. That's language of Genesis 1. That's language that God who began creation, and we're going to see in the coming weeks those days of creation. And we're going to see the purpose behind them to bring that fullness into the world that was lacking. We're going to see the beauty of that. But church, what I want to leave us with today is that you can trust God with whatever chaos or whatever incompletion may be present in your life. Maybe present in this world where you look around and say, you know, there are aspects of what's going on right now that I think that God is not done with. And you would be absolutely right. God is always moving things to his perfect, redemptive end. And what we see here is just a small picture, a small microcosm of what he will do with sin later on. But here is what this attribute of God, that this self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-eternal God is on the move. That's Genesis, church. That's the origins. That's what we're going to walk through over the next... 12 weeks. And I pray that we would be able to walk out of here not with a, a lack of confidence, but just with a greater assurance of who God is. Because we haven't gotten to all of the important questions that I mentioned that we like to ask ourselves. Like, who am I? What's my purpose? Where did I come from? But I pray that this morning we started with the most important question. The question that where the Bible starts with, and what is that? Who is God? So church, let's go ahead and end there. And I'll <clears throat> pray for us, then we'll respond in song. Well, Father, I thank you uh, just for your word. God, I thank you for all the ways that you have moved in this world. And we even get to see those, those first days, the beginning, in which you created the heavens and the earth. That you saw that it was without form. You saw that it was void. You saw the darkness, and yet you stepped into it. Not because you needed to, not because you were lacking anything in of yourself, but because you wanted to. Because we needed you to. And so God, I pray that we, as a church, would walk out of here knowing that you are eternal, that you are self-sufficient and that every single one of us can come to you just with adoration and dependency and know that this God of creation is also the God in whom went to the cross on our behalf.